This podcast is sponsored by GCK Consulting, a next generation political consulting firm. From fundraising to polling to campaign strategy, GCK is helping get millennials elected all across the country. To learn more about GCK and their services, just go to gckconsults.com. Again, that's gckconsults.com. All right, now to the podcast. Welcome to the Millennial Politics Podcast. I'm your host, Jordan Valerie. My pronouns are she, her, hers. And today I'm joined by James Singer, Democratic nominee for Congress in Utah's third. Now, James, I first heard about you in early 2017 when you were actually running for the U.S. Senate, presumably challenging Republican incumbent Orrin Hatch, who has since announced his retirement. What pushed you to jump out of that race and into this one? So my initial reasons for running was looking at Standing Rock. I myself, I'm an indigenous person. I'm, I'm a Navajo man. And I was looking at my brothers and sisters up there fighting for their sovereignty, for their rights to protect the sacred which was you know the water being being really threatened by an oil company putting this pipeline through and i just was like someone has got to get up there someone has to be in this power structure to help organize things and i was looking at the political landscape and i thought now more than ever we need an indigenous voice from utah we looked at warren hatch and his seat was vulnerable because he had such a low approval rating i thought let's do it let's pull the trigger let's do this as we went along we were trying to get the name out we were receiving a lot of really good feedback um, from from folks everywhere but then as my campaign team looked at it we'd need like 12 to 18 million dollars to mount a successful campaign against someone like Orrin Hatch. And <laughs> at that point, it was like, we just don't have that kind of the kind of resources needed for that. And so when I saw that there was another politician who was running, Jenny Wilson, I'm like, you know what? She's got the name recognition. I'd really love to see a woman fill that spot. So I reached out to her and said, what do you think about this? What if I put my weight behind you and kind of get everyone coordinated together for your campaign? And she was really open to that. And so we, we let that one go. But then as time went on, we started to see the, the things happening around Bears Ears. And this is really important because Bears Ears for, for my people is kind of like our Garden of Eden. It is, it is a place for where we have our origin stories. It's where we kind of first emerged. It's a very, very sacred place. There's a lot of archaeological sites in this area. The native folks there, there were five major native tribes that were working to protect this land. And they worked on it for years and they were working through different politicians. And so when it came time to designate this, we saw this as kind of the reversal of what was happening up at Standing Rock. Finally, the government seeing our voice, validating our voice, protecting land that we thought was and holds sacred. And then Trump comes in and totally rescinds the whole thing. And so this was in that Congressional District, Congressional District 3. And I have ties to that land for at least 30 generations. That is that is our homeland. That is my homeland. And I'm like, yeah, this is the place. So many things are, are, are coalescing. They're intersecting at this moment. Congressional District 3, that's the place to do it. And then when a lot of party leaders and other folks were kind of talking to me about, hey, you should run and this would be really good. This is this is this is the perfect storm. I'm like, you're right. This is this is this is exactly the kind of narrative that needs to be told at this time. So could you tell us more about your experiences at Standing Rock and what they taught you about the American political system? 
Absolutely. So I was here in Salt Lake City and when the first kinds of reports were coming out, I, I'm a public policy kind of analyst. I'm a sociologist. I'm looking at sovereignty specifically. From the very beginning, this was a sovereignty claim. It was saying we have sovereignty over this area. We get to make decisions over how this land is used because of treaties, treaties that were signed by Congress and through you know, the, the U.S. Constitution. This is something that we have. So I was out here in Salt Lake and I was working with a lot of other indigenous activists in the area. We did protests, we did rallies, we worked to have Salt Lake City pass a resolution to say, you know, we stand with those at Standing Rock it was a fantastic moment to see people of all different kinds of persuasions and backgrounds coming together around Standing Rock. And it was on one of these moments, actually, when I was giving a speech at a rally where I was like, we need people. We need someone to run. We need someone to run in Congress. And I never thought of myself as being that person because I was on the policy side. I was on the activist side. And it kind of clicked at that moment. Ah, who is the person that we need who understands these systems? Who is who is the person that gets how how government is supposed to work and understands these the ideological concepts? And I'm like, this is something I do every day. This is something I do every single day as a sociology professor. I'm constantly looking at this data. I'm constantly talking to my students about how cultural hegemony works and how how the the narratives are making us less likely to be involved and let things go. And I just thought, yes. This is the moment. This is I, I am I am that person. And it was it was weird. I think for people like myself, I think we we want to be involved, but we don't see ourselves as like, oh, I'm gonna go run for Congress. I, I'm comfortable working on my dissertation and being with my family and doing those things. But for people like us, sometimes that moment is thrust upon us. And when you're in that smaller group, you don't have the luxury to say, well, someone else can pick up that slack. Someone else can run. Someone else can do this thing. Nope. It It's very, very little pickings there. And so when it was thrust upon me, I thought, okay, I may not want to do this, but I need to do it. And then as I've been going on, I'm feeling, you know, like, oh, this is this is total right fit. This feels fantastic. I love going out and campaigning and talking to folks. And it's like going from the classroom, bringing it out into to the open. I see the click. I see the light turn on when, on so many people when I talk about the issues that are so important for us as a nation, but also things that I teach in my, in my sociology class. That's really great to hear. There's a lot I want to cover there. Uh, the first is, what exactly is cultural hegemony and how does it play into electoral politics? That's a great question. The best way I've found to relate this to folks is to think of the movie Titanic. Remember when the boat was sinking and all the upper class, the first class passengers are trying to get to the boats and they're, you know, having their crazy stuff. And there goes the, <laughs> the quartet with the, with the string instruments, you know, playing as everyone's going through all this chaos. But then it shifts to this other scene and it shows the third class passengers down below and there's a gate that's closed on them. And basically the, the powers that are there are saying, hey, you're not allowed to come up here. These boats are for the first class passengers. Why don't you just go back down to your rooms and just be quiet and quietly die when the waters come rushing in? And they have kind of a revolt. This is kind of that same idea, except for in cultural hegemony, 
the third class passengers hear what they're saying, these, these the people who are in charge and say, oh, you're right. It is in our best interest to stop the chaos that's going up there. Because if we go up there, it makes things worse. Let's do what they say. Go back down to our cabins, sit in our beds and quietly wait for the rushing, freezing waters of the Atlantic to kill us. This is that idea of cultural hegemony where those who are in power have an ideology, right? They have this way of thinking of how the world works. And that is then transmitted to us through different cultural mediums. And as we listen to those, we start to accept them through our processes of socialization. So one example of this in our current state is that we have this notion of like trickle-down economics or supply-side economics, which says that if we allow the upper class, those with the most power, to do whatever they want to make profit, that eventually that profit will come down to us if we do what they say. Because if we do that, then eventually we'll have the same kind of success that they have had, right? So that's the ideology. We then look at the evidence as sociologists and other social scientists, and we say, okay, we've let those who are in charge do whatever they want to our economy. They've privatized so many things. We see the retrenchment of the welfare state. We see the financialization of our economy, the outsourcing of, of good paying jobs to other, other places. We see all of these things happening. And we're looking at American workers, and these are like middle class down to, to working class workers, and we don't see any of those wages rising. Instead, we see growing economic inequality. And so that social mobility isn't there. That fair chance is no longer there. But that's not being called out. When we do call that out, when we start to critique that, people turn on it and say, well, you're being un-American. You're against democracy. You're against capitalism. It's like, no, we're just, we're just trying to critique the thing that you're talking about, and it's not working. And yet, while other countries have said, yeah, that doesn't work, what the Americans are doing, here, we're all like, nope, we still believe this. Because in the back of our minds as most Americans, we still think that if we work hard enough, we'll be able to achieve that American dream. We'll get all the riches and wealth that's there. When in reality, the opportunities are shrinking, the way that we can move from one social class to another is actually diminished. It's so much lower than it is in other places. It doesn't make sense. And this is the ideology that we're trying to deal with. As social scientists or as politicians then, we need to look at that evidence and say, what is the alternative then? What are the things that we can do? One of the things that we can do is say, well, we need to be focusing on expanding democracy to reduce this inequality. And that means expanding democracy, not only in our politics, but also in our economics. We need people to be in charge of the means of production, of being in charge of how the economy should be run. And when we see that happening in other places, we see that the, the choices that the populace makes are much more equitable. Equitable. It means that those who are at the very bottom have so much of an easier time to move from one social class to another. It really does mean that if you work hard, you can make something better out of your life. Right now, we're just not seeing that. What really stands out to me about your answer there is an understanding of how capitalism exacerbates inequality, which begs two major questions for me. What system do you prefer over capitalism? And what policies are you proposing to end inequality? So I identify myself as an indigenous, an indigenous environmentalist, democratic socialist. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think it like quite exists out there, that kind of party, but it's this idea of the indigenous part for me. I'm a Navajo man. The main philosophical driver for us as Navajo is to understand our relationship to each other. So when I, when I first meet you and I say, okay, 
tell me your clans and you tell me your clans and I tell you mine and we're like, oh, we're related in this way. With that relation, there is a set of responsibilities that we share back and forth. And this goes beyond just our relationship to each other. This means also with the land, with the water, the air, everything. We are related in some way. And there's a responsibility with that. We translate that into Western thinking as like social responsibility and empathy. Those are kind of ways in which I think about that. And so when I think of it, those types of things, then I start to see that Capitalism, especially neoliberal capitalism, is really the antithesis of what this is all about. We look at capitalism as a way in which those who have the means of production and the power are exploiting the people who don't. They're selling their labor power, but but they have to be exploited in order for capital to happen, in order for, for a profit to happen. And that is antithetical to this idea of social responsibility and empathy. The other thing that we're, we're looking at is the environmental crisis, which is exacerbated by human interaction. It is human induced. We are, we are making the climate different. We are causing global warming. When I'm looking at policies, then I want to look for ways in which we can empower the most people. And this is, this is where democracy comes into play. Our, our society, even our basis of our constitution is skewed towards the elite. We need to be looking at a way in which we can maximize the power of everyone who's, who's out there. And that may mean we, we need a strong welfare state. When I look at the evidence, those who have the least amount of poverty in their societies are those with a strong welfare state. And that is something that in our politics, it's like, what? A strong welfare state? No, we need less of that. And that's because, again, with that cultural hegemonic ideology, they're caring more about the top, the 1%, the elites, rather than they are at the bottom. This is against that whole idea of equality. It's against the idea of social responsibility and empathy. We need policies out there that care as much for the bottom 1% as the top 1%. Other things that we need to be doing apart from, from bringing back the welfare state is making unions and labor a lot stronger. I was really, really disappointed in the Supreme Court decision when it came to the Janus case, where it's pr pretty much gutted all of the public employee unions. And this is, this is a, a, a policy position that we've taken in our country, that the individual is the only thing that matters, and that groups are just collections of individuals. And that's not actually how society works. Workers are a group, and they are more than the sum of their parts, but alone they cannot fight these large corporations. They need to band together in order for, for this whole thing to work. That is where democracy happens in the market. We need strong labor unions. We need strong worker associations to be able to counteract all of the power and the resources of a corporation. So one of the other things I'd be looking at as, as far as policies are ways to enhance labor unions. We need the kind of policies that bring about the equality. So we're looking at healthcare access for everyone, free at the point of delivery, looking at free college tuition, you know, at the point of delivery. We need to be expanding our, our infrastructure, especially when it comes to green technology. And these will provide good paying jobs. But more than that, we have to value human life and what that means. And so all these policies have to have that in mind. What is our social responsibility? How do we see this person as a human instead of as some commodity that can be bought and sold? So you mentioned that resources were a concern with your campaign. You've mentioned the corrupting influence of corporations on politics. 
This is something that I think is very important to progressives on the campaign. It's a problem progressives run into. How are you financing your campaign and what challenges have you run into? We're finding this financing this campaign right now only through individual donors. And there are pros to that. Everyone has a piece of this campaign. And that's what I love. I love that we have you know, hundreds of people stepping up and giving, giving what they can. It also means that we're limited and we know that we know that going into it. And it's, it's a, it's a decision that we have to base on morals and values that we won't take money from weird super PACs or dark money or anything like that, because that really erodes the basis of democracy. It means that these large corporations get to buy influence. I don't believe in a pay to play kind of politics. I think that we all need to work together, but it does mean that it makes it difficult. And especially in Utah, in that district, and, and I'll explain this, we're looking at Utah, Utah's third congressional district as being like an R plus 25, which is a really supposedly conservative area. And it's true. There's a lot of conservatives in this area. What happens though, is that those who are Democrats or identify as left-leaning progressives, liberals, they look around, they're like, ah, I'm the only one here. There, there's no one else around here. And they just feel alone. They feel like their voices don't matter. And so when they have a candidate that shows up, they're just like, well, this person looks great, but you know, we're going to lose anyway. So, I mean, I'll show up maybe to the polls, but I don't know. I don't really feel that way. They look at presidential politics and they're like, especially with the electoral college. And they're like, oh, in the state of Utah, my voice really does not matter whatsoever. That is a, a one of the major obstacles that we're seeing when it comes to financing, because they look and they say, okay, there is a really great candidate, but you know, I'm reluctant to give money to this, to the campaign that's probably going to lose. What we're trying to do then is show how, when we all show up, that's not the case. I'm looking at the numbers and if everyone showed up or if everyone who voted in the presidential election shows up for this midterm election, we actually have a real good fighting chance. And especially with the initiatives that we have going on in Utah with, with medical marijuana, with better boundaries and looking at gerrymandering and redistricting, people want to show up. People are excited about it. We had an enormous turnout for these petitions to get on the ballot for November. I think it'll bring out a lot more people than we usually do. The other thing that we're doing that tries to shift that perception is we're trying to be everywhere. So most of the time they say, don't print out yard signs. Don't get, don't waste your money on those because they don't vote. And I think under normal circumstances, that makes sense. But if you're in Utah County and you think you're alone, but then you start to see a whole bunch of singer for Congress signs, you're like, wait, I'm not the only one. I, I'm, I'm, there are other weirdos like me. <laughs> and so it starts to create this change, this shift in the mentality. And so that's what we're, we're looking at is if we can shift the mentality of folks living in the district, I think they'll be able to, to, to find that we'll, we'll be able to finance our campaign a lot better. The other thing we're looking at is we have to look outside and we know that this is, this, this could very well be a hotly contested race if we get the right kind of financing. It just means we got to share our story. We have a compelling story. Here I am, the first Navajo man 
to ever run for Congress in Utah, in the district where Bears Ears is at, in the district where there has been gerrymandering against Navajo people, who identifies with the majority religion of the state, who is well-educated and is working on his PhD, who's overcome all... I mean, there's this narrative that's there that I think people from outside of Utah will look at like, this is this is a campaign I can get on board with. I do care about public lands. I do want to go and recreate in those areas. I do care about what happens to those disenfranchised voters, the very least among us. It's just people can, can get on board with that. The thing that we're working on then is just getting that story out and getting people involved. Hey everyone, I'm Nathan. And I'm Dylan. And as you know, Millennial Politics is totally independent and volunteer run. That means every podcast you listen to, every article you read, and every tweet you see is created by a dedicated team of volunteers. It also means that we can say what we want to say when we want to say it, but we rely on listeners just like you to support our work. We hope you'll consider supporting us by subscribing at patreon.com slash millenpolitics. Every dollar will go directly towards our mission of shining a spotlight on progressive candidates, causes, and organizations. And if you subscribe at the ambassador level or more, we'll send you a free copy of How Our Government Really Works Despite What They Say. It's an award-winning book about the intricacies of American government, and you'll get to join our exclusive ambassador Slack channel and get to hang out with us all day, every day. I pretty much live there, so if that appeals to you, come join us. And we want to give a very special shout Shout out to our executive producer, Greg Stevens, and our producers, Brad Tracy and Renee Garcia-Brown. Again, if you want to continue hearing interviews and conversations just like this one, we hope you'll visit patreon.com slash millenpolitics. That's patreon.com slash M-I-L-L-E-N politics and join the movement. All right, now back to the show. Former Massachusetts Governor Mitt Romney won the Republican Senate nomination in a landslide and is expected to cruise to victory in November. Now, of course, you are not running against Romney, but I think that there are many notable things about his candidacy that are relevant not only to your state, but to the country and the GOP at large, really. Let's start off with the perception that Romney is a moderate, that he's a noble Republican, who will take on Trump. That, to be frank, is nonsense. Romney may disagree with Trump's style. He has said himself that he agrees with his policies because ultimately, Trump in terms of policy is your pretty typical Republican. In fact, Romney is to the right of even most members of his party, by his own admission on immigration, saying that we should deport all undocumented Americans, including dreamers. As I wrote in February, I really consider Mitt Romney, a polite white supremacist, a respectable white man with a nice smile that fools many into believing that he's any different from Trump in terms of policy and ideology when that's not really the case. What do you make of Mitt Romney's campaign and why do you think he's at least perceived to be having so much success in your state? You forgot to mention that he has great hair and a strong jawline too. I think that's really important. He looks like Dick Tracy. No. <laughs> but seriously, uh, looking at Mitt Romney, he has deep roots when it comes to the Mormon religion here. The Romney family is, is, is directly tied to that and people know that and knowing that he was, you know, in a, in a position of leadership at the local level in the church that he, uh, came here and did the Salt Lake, Olympics back in 2002 and managed that 
and was very successful with it, that left a really good impression. Plus the fact that he ran for president against you know, Barack Obama. And it's like, oh, we can't get any better than this. It's hogwash. I don't know how people can't see through it that most of the policies like like you were just mentioning hurt most people in the state. And this is this is the disconnect that we've seen in, in our state. Republicanism, and we see this all, all over the country, but Republicanism has supposedly cornered the market when it comes to values. And since so many people in Utah identify with Mormonism and the value system there, they equate those things as being like, you cannot be a good church member unless you vote Republican. And this is strange because even the leaders of the LDS church have come out and said, there are values we can find in, in all parties that align with our religion. And in fact, many of the members of the LDS leadership are not Republican. They, are, they have voted Democratic in the past. This is where I see Romney doing so well, is that he's dialing into those cultural dog whistle type things that perk up everyone's ears and say, oh yeah, I identify with him more than I can Jenny Wilson because Jenny Wilson just isn't Mormon enough. Mitt Romney is. Oh, he's also a Republican. That's great too. Policy-wise though, like you were saying, policy-wise, he fits in with Trump and people are excited because Romney is saying, I'll stand up to Trump on how he does things. Not, as, not exactly the policy, but how he does things. Because Utah is strange in that we look at Trump and we're like, uh, I don't know. I can't get on board because he's kind of an immoral person. We don't like him. And that's why so many of the moderates in Utah have done well getting through primaries and through the convention because they didn't align themselves to Trump because they see Trump. They're like, it's not just the Republican part. He's also a person who's void of so many morals. And this is why I think Romney does so well. Plus, he's such a practice politician. You get him in there. He just is so smooth. He's great at avoiding the hard questions and really great at telling the narrative that he wants to tell. And people buy it. People just love it because they, they want to see themselves in him. I think your point about these cultural dog whistles, regardless of the tone and style they're delivered on, is really what Republicans are banking on to win in, in November. I think the central one is immigration, and I think that's because it's a heavily racialized issue. It always has been, and it speaks to really the fundamental soul of the nation, what we want America to be, our values, what we want the people of America to look like, whether black and brown people belong in this nation. I think that's what this whole battle is really about. Could you tell us what your thoughts are on the slew of recent news and policies surrounding immigration and what you would hope to do as a member of Congress to ensure that immigrants are welcome in the United States? Of course. Yeah. I put out a statement when it was kind of really hot. Uh, I think it was like last week. So this will be three weeks from the broadcast about. And basically what I was trying to say is that we have to remember that all of this is on stolen land. All of America is on that. And so as an indigenous person, I have a very unique perspective about that. And if we want to rise to the promise of democracy, then that means we need to open our arms completely to those people who come in here the people who come searching for refuge. I look at this, my wife is from Venezuela and she left that situation because it was in a state of chaos. It was 
authoritarian and she left about i don't know when she was 18 like i'm 35 she's 34 so do the math she's been here for a while when we met she was about to move to spain um she was here undocumented it was difficult for her to live life as a full-fledged person not just a citizen, but as a full-fledged person, you're, you're constantly living in the shadows. You're constantly living in a fear that you will have to be deported back to an untenable situation. So when we got married, I started to see this new person emerge because she no longer had to be that way. She was a citizen. It took her time, but there is a, there is definitely a, a, toll that it has taken on her, a trauma that we're still trying to overcome. So my family now is a family of immigrants. I have two daughters and my mother-in-law lives with me and she left because it was even later in the Venezuelan situation. She was held at knife point in lines trying to get food. There wasn't a whole lot of food. People don't have medical supplies. It was a dangerous situation. And so she's here now. And she may not want to be because it's not her homeland, but she couldn't stay in Venezuela. So she's here now. And I think of all those folks who are coming from those kinds of situations and how our own policies as Americans have affected those people in, in Central America and, and coming from everywhere else. If we are such a, a superpower, that means that a lot of our policies are influencing the countries from where these people are coming. I'm, I'm just so irritated. I'm so angry about how we were treating people. It is inhumane that we were separating babies from their parents, that we were separating families, and there was no plan whatsoever to reunite them. It goes back to how I was thinking when my own people, Navajo people, were taken by the U.S. Army, put into essentially a concentration camp where many people died, and then generations still children being taken away from their parents to go into boarding schools. I am the first in all of my family to not be sent to boarding school. The first. This is a recent thing. And I still bear the intergenerational trauma of, of that kind of policy, of that intervention to try and make natives less native and make them more white. We know, and I know, that the policies that are going on when it comes to immigration are totally race-based. It comes out of fear. It comes out of xenophobia. It comes out of, of just a, a, a general white supremacy that we have to maintain America what it is. And this, is, this blows my mind because when I look at how race is constructed in the United States, the meaning of white has shifted over time. And who can be included as receiving those benefits has shifted over time. I just get, ah, you can hear me. I'm just getting so upset about this because it doesn't make any sense. These are human beings that are leaving their, their families. They need to come here. We should be opening our arms and letting them become part of America. So if I, if, when, I when I get into Congress, the thing that I would be pushing is not, is not keeping people in that, in the shadows, not keeping them at a substandard kind of uh, humanity. They need to be easily documented so that they can become part of our society, that they can add to our society, that we can move forward together and that we then see each other as equals. I think this is done by making our borders, if we're moving goods and services 
across the border without any problem. We should be doing the same thing when it comes to labor and when it comes to people. People are moving up here. They need to be documented. They need to be included. There needs to be an easy path to citizenship. Anyone who's wanting to come to the United States is not coming to destroy America. They're coming because they want a better opportunity. And that's basically our American dream. We should be providing those opportunities as easily as possible because then it helps our society generally, overall, and everyone starts to benefit from that. There are very few candidates willing to speak as frankly about that with so much detail and understanding of the issue. I'd like to go into even more detail on immigration. Recently, we've seen the Abolish ICE movement pick up a lot of steam. We saw Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, an Abolish ICE candidate, defeat Joe Crowley, a non-abolished ICE incumbent who was expected to become the next Speaker of the House, and she beat him by 15 points. We have seen, as of recording today, five members of Congress, one of them being presumptive presidential contender, Senator Kirsten Gillibrand, come out in support of ICE abolition. I feel very strongly about ICE abolition, but I do think we need to clarify what exactly it means. And that means going back into American history a bit, deportation and detention were only considered constitutional practices under federal jurisdiction because of a Supreme Court ruling validating and expanding the Chinese Exclusion Act, meaning that these practices, deportation and detention, these are literally remnants of the Chinese Exclusion Act. That's to say that abolishing ICE isn't about getting rid of one agency. It's about dismantling a system that has always been meant to uphold white supremacy, that has a deeply racist history, and bringing really an end to detention and deportation, and opening up a system where all undocumented people have a pathway to citizenship, and undocumented status is decriminalized. Could you tell us about your understanding of this history and your thoughts on the Abolish ICE movement? As a race scholar, I'm constantly looking at the foundations of our country and how race plays into that. And looking at my own my own race as, a, as an indigenous person, we weren't even considered citizens until 1928, which is like fine at the same time, but also like not fine, if you get what I'm saying. We weren't the first Americans. We were the last Americans um, because we were sovereign nations meaning that we were seen as distinct from the United States. Citizenship was pushed on us. We didn't ask for it. But doing so means that then we could become part of the United States, which means we could then become subordinated. This is what I see across the board, is that when we're looking at these different groups, they have to be subordinated. It's a value system. It's a value system of saying that the Western way of thinking and doing is the best way and that people who look and think like me are the best kind of people. Therefore, if there's anything else that's different from us, they either need to assimilate or go away. All of the the policies that we've seen from the beginning of the nation until even before, until now, still has that value system deeply embedded within the policies. That is the root cause. The things that we have to do is say, okay, Let's call that out and let's explain in detail exactly how we got to that point and why it's wrong. It's wrong because it's inhumane. It's un, it's a, a totally unequal. It, it has nothing to do with the promise of democracy. In essence, it makes us weaker as a people. It, it pushes us towards 
this tendency, this tendency towards authoritarianism and a way of how things are supposed to be. Now, I know that that that's a value system of having kind of this fatherly, patriarchal way of of dealing with society, and that's not the basis for for democracy. That is one of the main things we have to look at when I look at abolishing ICE. This, this makes sense to me. It's because ICE is different than border protection. I think border protection makes sense in that you want to be able to screen things that are coming in and out of the country. You don't want uh, bad things coming in. And I imagine that the percentage of that is is small when it comes to people. Yeah, we see drugs and and arms dealing and all of this. And there's different ways we can go about that too. But some kind of regulation, I think in principle, makes some kind of sense. ICE is looking at people in the interior. It's looking at people in the interior of the country. It is a few steps away from from some really fascist types of, of policies that we've seen all over, all over the world. It puts people in fear. It makes them feel like less of a person. It's based on fear tactics. And, and employers, they can use this. Like, well, if you guys don't accept this, like, really low wage and work for these hours, I'm going to call ICE on you and they'll come in and take you away. So, you're, you're constantly being treated as subhuman. It is, it is a thing that, ha- that really is antithetical to democracy. So, I'm, I'm totally for taking away ICE and instead bring those people out of the shadows getting folks documented, giving them the right kinds of identification to move in society. So, if they're here on asylum or if they're here because they're looking for a better economic opportunity and they still have to go to court, they can still participate in society. They can still be a part of it. They can come in for the hearing because they'll want to, because they'll be treated as human. But when you're not treating as human, of course, you're going to be living in fear. You're going to be avoiding any kind of authoritative figures, whether it be the police or, or, or other kinds of federal types of things. And that keeps people off the grid and it makes them a vulnerable population to employers. Employers can very much exploit that. We can pay them less. We don't have to pay taxes on them. We, I mean, there's so many things that we can do where they remain outside of what it means to be human in the United States, not just a citizen, but human in the United States. So a statement on your website that really struck a chord with me was that we need to, quote, end the failed war on drugs and stop using prison systems to treat the myriad of problems faced by poor communities and communities of color. This really gets to the deep issue of how the U.S. has used criminalization and incarceration to deal with essentially every issue. How do you want to dismantle this? We have to decriminalize drugs and drug use. That is a a public health problem more than it is a criminal problem. I mean, we criminalize it because, and we know this, we have tons of evidence, cocaine versus crack, essentially very, very, very similar drugs, except for people of color used crack. Well, we don't want that. So, we lock everyone away. And that's how we've dealt with all of these problems, is that if you don't conform to what the norms are for the dominant culture of society, then we have to lock you away. We've seen our prison population explode. There are more people incarcerated in the United States, the land of the free, than any other nation on the planet in the history of time. It doesn't make sense of who we should be. And and for for so many people that are incarcerated, it's because of drugs. And it was this, these three strikes you're out type of policies. It's the private prisons and the prison industrial complex. We're looking at, at 
people making money off of incarceration. And this is, I think, a major, a major flaw is when you start to privatize public resources is that those people who have the privatization now, they want to make money. In order for them to make money, they have to keep those jails full. And so their interests then are finding different ways in which we can incarcerate more and more people. The other thing we then have to do is expand our social services. Why are people taking drugs and why are they using that? I think for a lot of folks, it is to deal with just the kind of life that they have to live in. I think this gets back to economic inequality. If you're living in a society that says you are a failure because you can't obtain all the things of what success means in our society because it's been systematically kept from you, then you're going to be trying to find ways and just to feel or not feel, like not feel all this, this, this failure, but feel better. We just have the stress. I mean, and it's not just poor people or people of color. We have huge opioid addictions here in, in Utah, especially in the district that I'm trying to, to represent in Congress. These are people who are feeling the effects of like, I am not a full participant in this society. I am subordinated in some way. How do I deal with this? We need better mental health care services and we need to take the stigma away from mental health. That's why I've been very open when I've talked about healthcare, about how I myself have suffered from mental health issues, specifically depression and anxiety. And that, you know, this is something that I deal with. And when people see that someone who's running for Congress or any other leader is dealing with that, and it doesn't affect my passion about changing things, I think we can have better dialogues with that. The other thing is that we have some very racist policies when it comes to policing. When you send a bunch of, of police into an area with high concentrations of people of color, of course, you're going to find th bad things going on. And that's why they get incarcerated at higher rates. I lived in a, in a neighborhood just to the south. It was, it was a very nice neighborhood of, of very affluent folks. And I know that they use drugs at the same rate that they use it over in some of the, the communities of color here in Salt Lake. The thing is, they don't have police roaming the streets all of the time. Those kinds of policies have got to stop as well. Mental health issues, public health issues, policing, education, the school to prison pipelines, how we're dealing with, with that, who has access to education, where are the resources going for that education from the K through 12 system all the way into to state and, and, and public colleges. All of those have been biased towards those who fit a certain kind of mold. And we just need to be looking at that ourselves and say, this is unfair. This is not justice. We need to bring these resources to as many people as possible so that we can all enjoy, quote, the blessings of liberty to ourselves and our posterity, unquote. So you mentioned the Supreme Court. Of course, as a member of the House of Representatives, you would not have a vote on Trump's judicial nominees. But nonetheless, you can be a leader making statements on what these appointments mean. What exactly would it mean to have a 6-3 conservative Supreme Court majority? And how would you work to fight against unjust and unfair court decisions in Congress? When I'm looking at this, this, this issue specifically, the, the choices, the decisions that that Supreme Court could make would affect our country for decades into the future. This is why I think taking a stance right now and being a leader and saying, look, young folks specifically, right? This, I mean, I'm a millennial too. Young folks, you realize you love grandma, you love grandpa. 
but they say some pretty crazy stuff when it comes to being progressive. <laughs> they say some sexist things and some racist things. And, and what's interesting is that they turn out to vote at higher rates than we do. And that means they're going to vote in people in the Senate who are going to confirm a certain kind of person on the Supreme Court. If that Supreme Court justice is super conservative and everyone in the Senate is all like, yep, this is okay. We know this is going on. That is what we can expect. It is time for us as, as, as young people, as young adults, we need to be standing up harder than ever and making our voices heard. We need to be pushing all of those pain points so hard because this is our future. The, the people, our grandparents, our great-grandparents, they will not be around in 20 or 30 years when we're still feeling the repercussions of that. We will. We need to get out there. We need to be voting. It is so important. We need to be pushing in, in the activist realm. We need to be pushing when it comes to policy. When we do that, we will be able to control our own destiny. We can act and not be acted upon. Those are the kinds of things I, I hope that we can rise to. It, it really shows this kind of promise of democracy for ourselves as young people. I think part of that is making sure that we do a lot of, of grassroots activism. I mean, that's part of my, my background. It's the, the master's degree that I got in community leadership. I teach in that program now. We know that when we mobilize, when, when we utilize democracy, that we can make these kinds of, of decisions that we want happen in our policy. But if we stay on the sidelines and if we're, we're not involved, then they're going to get away with it. They're totally going to get away with it. We, and it is, it is up to us. It is so important that we realize that. It is up to us to change that. Now, this is a big question Democratic House candidates are facing. Recently, Barbara Lee, the only member of the House to vote against the AUMF, which basically gave the president a blank check for war, announced that she is interested in running for House leadership, while on the other hand, Nancy Pelosi is expected to take the mantle of House Speaker. Do you have any sense of who you would prefer? I think it's time for some some younger voices to be up up and coming. I really am am impressed with some of the other prog younger progressives that are out there, like Tulsi Gabbard from from Hawaii, Deb Holland from from New Mexico. Hopefully, she can get in. I think she'd be a great one. What what I'm trying to get at is I don't I don't see a, a lot of where I would like to see the country going reflected in in some of the leadership that's currently in Congress. And I'm sorry to say that, but that's just kind of how it is. Now, lastly, how can folks get involved in your campaign, and where can they find you online? Folks can get involved in the campaign by obviously contributing to to the campaign. I mean, we are we are the beacon of progressivism in Utah, and if you if we want to flip the house, then this is a, a, a prime spot to to make a statement. Other things they can do is volunteer. One of the things that we're trying to do in our campaign, this is kind of our plan, is making sure that we register voters, that we get out people who have voted before but don't come out in midterm elections, that we reach out to folks who sh are like-minded. So any of those kinds of things, calling them, making sure they're coming out to, to, to the election is really important. Where you can find us, the campaign is at jamesinger.org. That's the website. We're on Facebook. It's Singer for Utah. We're on Instagram. I have my own personal one that's pretty open to the public, but we have a, a campaign one that's also Singer for Utah. And I'm on Twitter like 
pretty often. And my handle is at Urban Navajo. And you can get me there. And I'm pretty responsive. I think I, I, think I have fun on Twitter. <laughs> I'm, I'm serious, but I also have this dry sense of humor that kind of comes out. So it's fun to see that. Okay. Well, thank you so much for coming on. I know this episode went much longer than expected, much longer than our normal episode. But that's because I've really enjoyed this conversation and think you have some really important insights, a really strong voice of leadership. And I really hope that you end up winning this race in November. Thank you so much for having me on. I really enjoyed this conversation too. And I also hope that I win in November. Thank you so much. For our listeners, again, I am Jordan Valerie, politics editor at Millennial Politics. You can find me on Twitter at Jordan Val Allen. Make sure to follow Millennial Politics on social media. Subscribe to our newsletter and check out our merch at millennialpolitics.co and stay tuned for the next episode of our podcast. Thanks for listening.